Hi, this is Jeff Crawford, Bohemian After Dark podcast. Yes, this is the third episode. Sorry for the big long break. I had to take a summer off, everybody. So, Ben Minot, Thrillhammer, friends of musicians in Portland, and we're going to talk about his backstory, Thrillhammer, and Chris Newman. So, hi, Ben. How you doing? I'm good. Good. Hi. Great, man. So, let's get into your music backstory sure. and everything. Uh, well, I grew up back east, but moved to Portland in 87. Much Portland was a very, very different town then. And um, I didn't really, you know, growing, growing up in Connecticut, there were various nightclubs, but there was like one per town. So you're driving to a whole different city to go to a different club. And I don't really remember being aware of there being a scene like local bands that you followed. Uh, so I moved to Portland, um, stumbled into the long goodbye uh, one Friday night, I guess. And it was obituaries and I had a great time. I think, I think Pete Nelson, Monica Nelson's husband got 86 that night, uh, as I recall. Um, but uh, I, when, after, right after I moved to Portland, I was staying with my uh, older brother who had moved here the year before. And his housemate was uh, the keyboard player in the band Cooler. And it's the next morning I'm raving about this long goodbye, this club that I'd found and seeing rock. And he's like, well, if you, if you think that's cool, you should check out Satyricon. Uh, you know, they'll have like four or five bands a night for four or five bucks. And so that night I went to Satyricon and um, uh, I'm pretty sure the headliner that, that night was Slack, a band, another band that I wound up seeing a whole bunch back then. And, you know, I was, I was hooked. I just started going to Satyricon all the time, basically, me and, and the friends that I started making there, we would joke that we lived there. You know, we were there more than anywhere else other than our own bed. Um, and as I got to meet some people, um, my first like close friend in town was a guy, uh, Josh Baker. And he wanted to do a band. Um, he wanted to sing. Um, and I forget how it all came together, but we wound up um, meeting up with Pete Krebs and Dave Treewasser, and we formed a band called Grind, oh. uh, which played for probably a year. And actually, um, funny side story we can get into if you want is um, we sure. opened for Nirvana at uh. Uh, Gallery. Um, it was supposed to be Catbutt, and uh, Dave Treewasser, the drummer in, in Grind, um, called, got a number for somebody and called Catbutt, got it all set up. And then that week of the show, the bass player cut his hand as a waiter and he was opening a wine bottle and sliced up his hand really bad and was on a, a big bandage so he couldn't play. But they're like, well, but we know these guys. We, we played with them in Olympia. They're really cool. They're on Nirvana. They've got a single on Sub Pop. They're going to be, they're going to be great. So that show wound up being just pretty much the local bands and our girlfriends standing there watching Nirvana mm -hmm. the first show ever important. Not very many people showed up. No, no, no. I mean, well, especially because it, it was supposed to be Catbutt and then like the Caput had a name, but Nirvana didn't really in Portland yet. And um, I think there's probably something else going on that night that was you know pretty big. Mm. And uh, none of us openers look, we none of us had a draw. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so we were growing for a little while. And then um, one of the things I'm not too proud of in life is we, Dave and Pete and I agreed that um, Pete was a better singer than um, Josh was. So we broke up Grind with actually we said we broke up um and got a different practice space and picked the name thrillhammer 
and um, wrote all new songs. Um, I mean, so technically we did break up. It wasn't Grind anymore. It wasn't the same songs. Um, but it'd be years before I apologized to Josh and <laughs> you know admitted that I didn't have the, the balls to just tell him to his face that we, sorry, we, Pete's a great singer and um, great frontman. And um, it's lucky to have played with both of those guys. Um, Pete went on to be in Hazel and then a um, bunch of uh, folk and blues and swing bands. Um, and Dave went on to be in Pond. Um, and uh, yeah, so Thrillmer um, did one tour down the coast that I booked uh, myself and broke up on tour. Mm. Um, dumb, dumb fight. <laughs> dumb Road trips. Uh, yeah, dumb kind of annoying guy that we uh, agreed to let be our roadie. Wow. You know, he never really did much roadieing. He just kind of came with us and didn't have any money and <laughs> didn't really have a plan and um, got really drunk on the free booze at, at one of the bars and got in a fight with Dave. And, and then Pete's like, that's it. I, you know, I don't feel like I'm, uh, I don't feel like we fit together, which, you know, crushed me. I didn't feel like I had as many options as they did, although I did wind up um, ironically, Dave went into Pond and Pond kicked out their drummer, Ken Adams. And I took Ken Adams and formed Rotor with um, Dale Moore from the Oily Bloodman. Um, yeah. Uh, which is, in a way, it was Great kind band. of like, thanks. Uh, it was kind of my ideal band, is like really the closest to what I had always envisioned doing. Uh, although, as uh, Seth Perry pointed out just at one point, um seth i don't know if you know seth but he's he can be very blunt um he he would not have had a problem kicking out the lead singer of a band when he thought it wasn't um up to snuff uh he's like you know you and dale really can't sing um why don't you just get a singer and dale and i both felt like we were writing our lyrics we want to sing them which that was a period in my life when i thought i was something of a poet and had important things to say and um I your words are important yes <laughs> yeah. yeah i kind of shudder looking back at it now because um a lot less <laughs> how naive. we evolve you know yeah <laughs> um so then throw hammer opened for nirvana as well i don't want to make this all about nirvana but hmm. prior to starting this you and i were talking about some about nirvana um and we opened for nirvana the infamous uh new year's eve show hitting birth and it's nirvana hitting birth uh, Caustic Soda, Thrill Hammer, and Rock Music. 1990 or? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, for sure. That was, went, that was my first show in Satyricon. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a good night. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, but then went on tour in spring of 91 and broke up. And yeah, as I explained, Dave off the pond, Pete off the hazel, me eventually starting Rotor, but then. Um, Rotor was a struggle, like Seth pointed out, we weren't very good singers and it was difficult music. Um, and I was also, uh, we didn't have a practice space. So I was arranging, every time I wanted to practice, I arranged to make sure we could get into a friend's basement to practice. Uh, we didn't know a van. So I was borrowing a van from um, a friend of my girlfriend, girlfriend at the time, every time we needed to play a show. I was booking all the shows. Um, so yeah, so when the drummer announced that he, his wife had gotten a job in Atlanta, and so he was moving, 
Dale, Dale had also had developed quite a bad heroin habit at this point. And um, Dale's like, well, geez, I guess we'll have to start looking for a drummer. And I'm like, no, Dale, I'm done. That, that's, that was, the writing was on the wall right there. Um, and I, I'd also started booking Satyricon, uh, started that in August of 93. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, it was a conflict of interest too, that I booked Satyricon and was also the music editor for PDXS. So okay. I could choose to write about shows at Satyricon that I'd book. But I like to feel like I, I held myself to a certain standard. And yes, I would give Satyricon some coverage, but I'd make sure to give other things coverage. But being in a band as well is also even more conflict. And, I, and I, like I was saying, I was just I just felt done. I didn't feel like I mean I pretty much from the moment I I always knew I wanted to be do something with music. And once I found Satyricon, I like I really wanted to, I just wanted to be in a band that achieved a certain level of success, like being able to headline La Luna and having the respect of uh, your peers, not, you know, huge and stadiums and not getting rich on it, but just doing it as a something of a profession or part-time profession. Um, but I never really, never really got to that. Um, I guess. Uh, but you tried for the opportunity. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you made a you made your mark with your music that was good, Thanks. and then the progression of of what you're doing. You know, didn't you start booking the shows in Satyricon after that? Or yeah, yeah. So Thrillhammer broke up in '91. Rotor probably later that year or early in '92. Um, played for a couple of years. I feel like we broke up in. I thought we broke up in the fall of 93 after we recorded at Smegma Studios, but but actually I think um, I think I have an x-ray tape that Dean Fletcher recorded, which I think was in 94. So maybe it was fall of 94 we broke up. But, and I started booking in August of 93, so there was a little bit of overlap there. But once, yeah, once I was fully up to speed on the booking, I, yeah, it was, I was the other side of the music, um, no longer interested in playing. And it's interesting though, like having played music gave me a different perspective than I think a lot of bookers would have. Uh, and then booking, I feel like anybody who's in a band that really wants to be serious should do some booking as well, because it's a different perspective and you can, you can get tunnel vision if you only think about it from one point of view. Um, never really worked for a record company, but I did take bands in the studio and engineer them. Oh, I was, Doing uh, working for Concert Sound prior to um, uh, starting at Turcon, um, just doing the concerts, uh, concert load-ins and loads-outs, and started learning how to do sound. And then was doing sound at Turcon when George asked me to cover the booking for while well, he was. I was just going to cover it for a month while he was in Greece, but he, he came back and was like, "Well, you want to keep doing it?" Like, sure. Wow, cool. Um, so yeah, so I wound up doing it for six years. Wow, you did um, it for six years. That's a Terracon. I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little under, a little under six years. I started in August of '93 and left at the end of March of '99. Um, yeah, kind of changed a lot over those years. Um, for one thing, when I started, uh, I'd just go in and stand behind the bar in the middle of the day and um, check the, the messages on the cassette voice uh, not voicemail cassette uh, answering machine <laughs> yeah and everything was you know handwritten notes and um uh 
you know, just call people and return messages. And, um, you know, people knew that I was there at a certain time, so I'd get, get calls. Um, generally, a lot of local bands is like, put me on something, put me on something. Um, I, I learned fairly quickly to put, put the onus back on the musicians and say, put together a, a bill and I will judge it and determine whether I feel comfortable. I feel like that can um, handle a Friday or Saturday. Um, I definitely got some guff over the years from musicians who thought I, I held them back intentionally by not just giving them the Saturday that they so righteously deserved. Um, but but if you have mind, a draw, you're, you can draw it in on a Wednesday too, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's I mean, like a restaurant, you know? I, and I, I will give, I will give, if it's not super packed on a Wednesday, still, I can tell, I can adjust in my mind, or I could back then anyway, um, this is what a Wednesday draw looks for them, so I can extrapolate to what they would draw on Saturday. Um, and a lot of it too wasn't just like an individual band, it was mm -hmm. putting together a bill that um, if you could get like three bands, four bands that had different overlapping but somewhat different draws then that was like the most ideal show um yeah so i put the onus back on them and say you 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 get something together and then, then there were you know a dozen two dozen probably just a dozen um bands in portland over over those six years um they'd come and go um that had demonstrated that they could carry a friday or saturday and so it was always like put the the touring the, the booking agent avails in place they're they're usually calling months in advance um and try and get those locked down and then fill in the other fridays and saturdays with your ringers your local ringers and then just you know fill it in from there but as much as if the bands can once you lay out the basic important slots and the bands just fill it in that's that's less work for me but, yeah like like kind of like Satericon reminds me of Mason Jar in Phoenix, Arizona. Complete polar opposites of the planet. You know, and, and ideology, weather, <laughs> cactus versus tree. But um no, but like like there's this guy, um, Franco. And Franco is like Georgian way. But Franco would work, you know, wore clogs and then he would get on stage and say say 75 cent kamikaze stop the fucking band in the middle of this shit man what the fuck are you doing man <laughs> and one time it was like he made the band stop to watch michael jackson's thriller god dang man <laughs> that's weird god it's, stop everybody we're gonna watch this put it on the screen i feel like god, um well, thriller played phoenix on our one tour and it was a nice club fairly large club really good pa and I could never remember the name of the venue, but maybe it was the Mason Jar. Well, that's was there small. another? It was. There's several. Like that sounds like after the Gold Rush in Tempe. Mm -hmm. There's like they had a bigger we played, station. Um, we played the Sunroom. Ah, Tempe. yeah, that's in Tempe in Mill Avenue, off Mill Avenue in ASU. Yes, that's still mm -hmm. that's still Tap Room became the Tap Room now. But um, yeah, that's a good spot too. That's like kind of like Satericon's like that too, like. Tap room, right. the yucca room. Now uh, they have another one called the yucca room. But anyways, um, 
um, mason jars like like you know, it had that same vibe as Satericon, but like the, the, it had a smaller stage. <clears throat> it was one room, and when it, in in the summer, there was even if the air conditioning is running at full blast, you're melting inside. Mm, yeah. So shows sucked in the summer. No one would really mm. go there. You know what I mean? So. I was smart enough to uh, book this in April. There you so go. Before that's the, like a sweet the spot, April, wave. and um, I guess the the same thing in the fall, like September, or maybe early October. But um, yeah, I remember Arizona being somewhat hot, but not not unbearable. Actually, I remember Phoenix being super hot outside. Um, but um, I actually, you know, I, I still I got to give myself some credit for that tour. Uh, I just I, I was working a full-time job as a printing press operator and um, I would like call and leave messages and then try and call people, but they, they, they weren't there after I got home from work. So I like, I think I took a day or two off of work here and there and just, just spent it all day, just calling and calling and calling. And um, we played, we opened for Earth Overkill in Tempe, the Sun Club. Oh, that's, got paid a good, a, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I got paid, got paid a half rack of Coors. <laughs> um, Coors Light. Um, and then we went for Melvin's in Phoenix, and I want to say I think it was the Mason Jar. Yeah. Um, and what year was that, man? Ninety-two, April. Uh, I was already gone. Yeah, Yeah, I did. I did Melvin's in what was it, eighty-nine, Mason Jar, and and that was Franco hated them. They're playing too fucking slow. What's wrong with these guys? (laughs) Hey, man, you you, you like Black Sabbath, right, man? I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was the only comeback I could come with. They're great, man. Come on, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, I I feel like I got another good band on that tour, but now I can't remember. Maybe I feel like we opened for Superconductor at one point. Maybe that was the Vancouver show, and then we we had a kind of friendship with. Um, Still pull bathtub crashed at their um Good well just the, the boner records office would crash in their office um often when we went down there and in fact actually it was uh mike moraski from steel pole that got Thrillhammer hooked up with rough trade germany um, oh great the second second shitty thing that i did in my life why is that after not ha- after not having the, the balls to tell josh that we were just kicking him out uh, um we yeah. broke up on tour and got home to a voicemail from mike moraski saying hey uh, rough trade uh rough trade germany just went into business that they, they're looking for american bands um and i was gonna give him your name but um i heard you broke up and i talked to pete and dave and we agreed that we would lie and say that um we just we we work things out we're just we're not going to play much we're kind of like going on the down in the dl you know and so we kept taking shows for uh the next year or so maybe two or three shows over the course of a year um to give the illusion of still being a band and took their fifteen hundred dollars and i flew uh steve albini out from chicago and took him to uh dogfish records in newburgh and recorded with albini which was simultaneously uh, really great one of the greatest musical experiences of my life and also kind of sad and i was such a a silly little um sycophant uh you know i worshiped steve albini and worshiped his bands and so i kept making big black jokes until he finally told me to shut the fuck up <laughs> not mention big black anymore 
Meanwhile, um, <laughs> Dave Trewasser had gone, he was a molecular biologist or some, some sort of biologist, uh -huh. um, had a science degree, and he and Albini wound up talking about chemistry the whole time, just totally geeking out on <laughs> lost in the terminology what they're talking about like yeah yeah I, thank I, I, you so i'm it's i'm doubly hurt like he tells me to shut up and then he's sitting there just gabbing away with my drummer but um pete i feel like pete was just like yeah let's just get this over with and um but you know we got a document of that band and it's a good i think it's a good album um back in 2012 denny swafford uh from cavity search hit me up to re-release it um i'm doing air quotes right now he said re-release it and then of course when we talked it didn't actually mean pr press it again like make vinyl or cds he meant sign a contract so that i can then put this up on 30 some download sites all over the world and um you know give you some tiny percent i, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's a good percentage deal but i never never saw anything from it I mean, this is a band that's broken up for 20 years, so not did you expect much, but um, I, I called him out on it, like, after a couple of years, like, are you ever going to send us a statement? I mean, even if it's zero dollars, it's, you know, it's kind of business, typical business is to send a statement saying you didn't make anything, and he sent me a check for $10, um, which I think I asked Dave and Pete if they wanted their $3.33, and they said, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> wow, what a drag. Jeez. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, um, actually, right about that time, early two thousand or early twenty tens, um, I got hit up by this guy who was writing a book about Nirvana. Uh, he wanted to interview me about playing opening for them, and he had talked to a whole bunch of people in the uh, Northwest. Um, uh, I had to look around here somewhere. Um, it's like something my friends. Um, Shoot, I wish I could remember the actual name of the book. Uh, his name was William Smith, uh -huh. and so it's like a, a um, an oral oral history of the indie scene around that time and and the impact of Nirvana. And uh, it's a pretty good book. I mean, it's got some interesting quotes in it and good stories. And then he was talking to uh, this English record label. I think it's actually a record store in London, and they but they put out records as well. I get the impression they're kind of. Um, the label's called Soul Jazz. I got the impression they're kind of um, like the Rhino Records of England. They'll like do re-releases and compilations and yeah, like um, garage bands, the Nuggets. Like yeah, they have, they yeah, have the series kind of, of the Nuggets with the garage bands from the '60s and '70s, kind of. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So, so yeah. So they took two songs from the Thriller album for that compilation, um, which is funny because I I listened to it. I have a copy on CD, but. Uh -huh. A few months ago, I, I listened to it on Spotify, and now Spotify loves to pop those songs in amongst all its, its um, what do you call it? the the playlists that it makes for you, which I'm sure not curated. It's just computer computers thinking that this goes with this. Um, but it's funny to be just working away and you know your day job, and all of a sudden your your quote unquote hit single from uh, twenty some years ago. Uh, comes on but um yeah that triggers a nice memory mm -hmm. you know like like people like what people haven't heard that or never heard it before and they play it on if someone hears it on spotify I wonder how, how many do you know how many downloads it's gotten off no of? no idea wow. which you know going back to the whole it'd be nice to 
you know, do a, not, not to badmouth Denny or anything, but he's a great guy. I love Denny. Um, and I don't, I don't really have much experience with the only other record label I had a relationship with. I screwed over. <laughs> and, uh, this is how naive I was in 1992. I actually called like six months after the album came out, I called Rough Trade Germany in Germany and asked them if we'd made any money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, I think, feel like it was like 30 seconds of silence. And he's like, you took our money knowing full well that you weren't a band anymore and recorded something that if you don't support this, nobody is going to buy it. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the, the folly of youth. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I forget what we were talking about. Thrill Hammer, <laughs> your band. And what we're, what, you know, we're talking about Rough Trade, and you, you know, you went to Rough Trade, and then, mm -hmm. and then, then yeah, we're and talking about Cavity Search. You know, with, with Cavity Search, you only gotten, you know, so much money, $10. Oh, right, right. We're talking about, um, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to know, like, how often does our song, do our songs get streamed on? Probably not a lot, but um, more than zero, I think, uh, even if it's just me, mind listening. Um, no, I, we we had, Thrillhammer definitely had a few fans. And, you know, when it comes up on Facebook, you know, there's always this person or that person will comment, like, oh, I totally missed that band. Um, I mean, I guess that, that's a very common experience. There's lots and lots of people. Uh, in their 40s or 50s in Portland now that just had kind of sort of memorable memorable bands and uh, yeah their little attempt at at, uh, at fame or at least some sort of notoriety <laughs> does it feel like 20 or 30 years ago yeah yeah it does yeah. I actually had a um, went back into playing music in 2013 um, uh, it was when Sean um, Roberts from uh, 30-06 died, uh, tragically in his 40s, low 40s, I think. Um, he had lived a very hard life, and um, from what I understand, it fucked up his liver. Um, and so they had a memorial, um, you know, celebration of life type thing at Clinton Street Theater. And, of course, Dave Blunk was there, and... I had seen Dave, he had had a band called Bastinato in the 2000s and I'd seen him on and off and um, I'm like, so what, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I've been playing a lot of jazz, but I really, I feel like I want to play some rock. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And I, I bought a bass a few years ago just to see if I could get myself interested. And I feel like I need to just put a band together and do something. So yeah. we wound up getting, uh, he and I got together and sort of working on some ideas. He knew a guy, um, Adam Draper, who played drums in, I think, a band called Fourth. Uh, he played with System and Station. Um, and then um, Will Hatman, uh, Adam brought Will in to uh, sing and uh, be the other guitar player. And we wrote a bunch of songs and recorded basement demos and then wound up talking to Denny um, since he had re-released the Thrillhammer stuff. Um, I think it feel like it was kind of important to us to have a a 90s imprint on the you know on the release like something saying this we identify with this stable the cavity search stable <laughs> i um, mean dave's a great guy dave blonde yeah. i mean 30 odd six right yeah and, one of my favorite bands ever yeah really great mute records by the way and mm. um yeah like 
that when that video when 30 odd six video came out from mute it was on with the that song the prodigy you know that mm. one that was the big hit you know mm-hmm. and i didn't think much of that song as like 30 odd six is a shit but mm. um you know like yeah clark yeah clark from hand prince mm-hmm. yeah I, also I was tragically gonna... lost lost this year yeah i didn't know I mean, I didn't know he was sick. That's that sick. He didn't let. Yeah, yeah, cancer. Yeah, I, I knew that, but I didn't. I thought it was like in remission, or I guess. Not, mm. you know. Yeah, I feel kind of bad because you know, I'd see his goings on on Facebook a little bit, but didn't didn't really reach out to talk to him. And I mean, I, we were never that close, but really, that's kind of the story of my life, my relationship with the, the Portland music scene. Is you see people at clubs. So I was never really the kind of person that like would call somebody up on the telephone and say, Hey, let's go have some beers. You know, I would just go to, I want to see this band tonight. And, you know, at various times in my life, I might've engineered someone being going to the show with me, but more, more the case was that I would just go to a show and whoever I ran into, I ran into lots and lots of um, casual friendships, not, not that many deep, deep friendships. But. Yeah, so but Clark still, was one of those casual. It's still a unification of DIY. You do it yourself. You know, the X-Ray Cafe is the prime example of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, what I think, you know, like like I compared, like we were talking about Phoenix, compared to the scene of Phoenix and Portland, it was it's night and day. The people in Phoenix do not support each other like the people mm. in Portland did. Mm. You know, to a degree there was, but not as much as what we... But in a smaller town, a city, mm-hmm. smaller city, half the size, Portland's half the size of Phoenix, but it has yeah. the big, bigger, vibrant artist community, music, music, and everything. And I'm talking about the '90s, especially. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know what your um, listenership is, um, but if if there are younger people or people not people who didn't live through Portland in the '90s. You have to understand what you missed. I mean, and it's not saying that this was specific to Portland. Um, San Francisco had a cool scene. Uh, Minneapolis had a cool scene. There's a bunch oh, yeah. of bunch of cities, but for awesome. its size, Portland had a scene on par with cities much larger, um, and in some ways better. And right. yeah, this is like the X-ray, just DIY. You know, it was hand painted and quirky and all ages, and um, was very irreverent and um, and there's just some, always something cool going on there. Satyricon also DIY hand painted and more, more dark and sinister and uh, adults only cause it's, cause it had liquor. Um, but it also had like, like I was saying at the beginning of this, Satyricon was my living room even before I, I started working there full time. Um, like it was the focal point of that scene for me. And there are people who are, X-ray was the focal point for their scene, and uh, EJ's too. Um, but X-ray was later down the road, anyways. Uh, X-ray was like eighty-nine to ninety-four. Um, so actually, the existence the of X-ray time. only overlapped barely overlaps my booking. Um, but there were EJ's different when, different when my, venues. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, like you were saying, it's all ages versus you know the adults, mm-hmm. you know, and then, Mars, you yeah. know, and then outside, you know, the the small little restaurant outside, you know, that draw a lot of people in that smell of that food, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when, when Mike 
Tasha started booking EJs. Uh, it's funny because I I was kind of sweet on Etta and I'd go over to EJs when it was a strip club and you know flirt with Etta and you know and, and she kept saying you know when Mikey gets out of prison he's gonna he's gonna really put us on the map and he's gonna steal all your shows and give you a run for your money and I'm like yeah right and, I, and he did he did oh, we man. fought we fought tooth and nail over shows and like came to really have a lot of respect for that guy another tragic tragic loss in the last year um and uh yeah so we fought over the same shows a lot but um i feel like we Styricon had its built-in clientele its built-in tribe and ej's had its and there's some overlap um i mean hell the 1201 1201 club which is weird because it when I close my eyes, I can't even picture what it looked like inside, but I, I spent so much time there. And that was the birthplace of um, uh, Thomas Lauderdale's band, uh, Peak Martini. Oh, yeah. Um, and I feel like the Dandies played there a lot. Um, this was 23. Um, yeah, it was a cool place. And that's, of course, Phil Ragaway, who's gone on to be very successful with a lot of um, bars and restaurants in town. Um, yeah, Portland in the 90s was just you know, it's, it's trite that um, Portlandia, you know, their whole, the whole angle was that you could, you know, it's where young people go to retire, right? Um, you could live really cheaply and do fun things. And it was kind of true. Like my, the Thrillhammer house, uh, which got torn down um, after we went on tour, we knew it was going to be torn down as Salvation Army owned it, but um, I think we were paying $395 for this whole house. And we, we put up sheetrock to split the living room with the dining room. So we rented out the dining room to one guy and me and Dave each had a room upstairs. And then we actually rented out the sunroom, which was uh, barely big enough to fit a bed in. Um, but we rented that out for 75. So I think, I think my rent was like 125, 150 or something. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, yeah. For a room, you know? Uh, so Can't. you could just work a, you know, slinging coffee and pay your rent and have a few bucks for beers and, you know, cheap Henry's dollar beers and, um, and then spend the rest of the time writing music and, you know, plotting your takeover of the world. I, I feel like that's not not the case anymore. Yeah, you could start your own business back mm. then. I mean, it was feasible versus other places in America. Mm. And um, I mean, that's I was able to get an office, start my business, and and be make it thrive. Versus, like, if I was in a like if I was in Salt Lake City, I would probably have difficulty. Right. And um, that's the beauty of it, you know. Like, it's good to remember all these things and everything. And um, yeah it's good to remember them on the other hand it's bittersweet because that all really kind of died in the 2000s um what do you think caused that well um so it's interesting because i i have some friends who um bitch and moan about portlandia and saying that like i've definitely heard plenty of people accuse portlandia of, of ruining portland because they make this funny show about how cool portland is and all these stupid idiots come live here and so rent goes up because it's in higher demand etc cetera, etc cetera. but really uh, this dawned on me a few years back quite a few years back now probably but really we the the musicians and the bookers and the artists and all the people doing cool shit 
in the 90s. We ruined it because we made it really fucking cool. And all these people coming through on tour, we told them it's super cheap here. We can you can live on nothing and create and create. So there was already the the influx was already in pretty high gear. And yeah, it might have uh, ratcheted up a few notches in the 2000s. But um, I also feel like and this might be a little bit of crotchy old man uh, yelling at the kids to get off my lawn, but <laughs> uh, I feel like we reached a, a plateau of um, creative music. Um, uh, and, you know, this really could just be my tainted view of it, because I, when I quit Satirica and I dropped out of the rock scene altogether, I had been ramping up into interest in esoteric electronic stuff and my whole world became online and um didn't really pay attention to rock in the 2000s but i feel like it it um what really took over was um not formulaic but um rigid adherence to certain genres like um the rockabilly thing or the garage band or um uh the you know spiky hair punk rock you had to be punk rock but you had to do it in this particular fashion which was about as much about how you look as what you're playing and i just feel like there's a, there was a bunch of bands like that and it became you know, you're having a show of this tribe this night on a show of this tribe this night whereas back in the late 80s you know you'd have you'd wind up with weird combinations um you know like untouchable crew on a show with poison idea i don't know if that ever happened but actually probably at mayor's ball they probably play the same stage um it just felt like there was fewer bands in the late 80s and early 90s so you couldn't pick and choose and you just put together you know everyone see everyone went to see all the bands um but by you know 10 years later late 90s early 2000s um it was much more uh, rigidly um Tribal tribal lines were drawn more rigidly. I feel like, but again, it could just be my um, aging viewpoint, and uh, probably right because the influx of people moving in towards the. I remember um, trying to. I was going to buy a house in the '95, and then like people were moving in really a lot, and it just like they didn't have any way to control the 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 influx of people wanting to buy a house, offering cash, seller's market. Right. Boom, yeah. like I'll offer you double of what that guy, and then suddenly yeah. the neighbor finds out, like, I'm gonna sell my house. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I can get 30, 40,000 more than I'm getting right now. I mean, I was looking at a house that was 30,000, and then mm. I just like, okay, I'll wait a month. And then that thing sold for 100,000. Jesus. You know, and this is 1995. Yeah. And, um, and then, wow, that's amazing. You know, that. Well, you you said you live in Los Angeles now. Um, uh-huh. I'll tell you, it's it's that way, and then some, right now, and has been pretty steady for the last few years. Uh, I've heard crazy things like people just yeah, all cash or here here's fifty thousand on top. Oh of yeah, it. Um, I mean I'm you know, I was waiting inspections like last, we don't care by sight unseen. Last year, Jennifer and I, my wife, looking at a place um, in Desert Hot Springs, which is has has natural aquifers cold and you know the mineral waters you know i have mm-hmm. arthritis i'm old anyways mm-hmm. and then um so hey yeah palm springs you know and then the, the, in palm springs you can't own your land it's on indian reservation 
So in, in Joshua Tree is Yucca Valley and Landers and 29 Palms. That's the high desert, low deserts, you know, you know, because of the fault line right there. Anyways, we've you know, been looking and trying to build a house. We were going to build now. We're not going to do that. We're going to buy. Last, this, last November, these houses were like no one was buying them. And suddenly, like, people, you know, snowbirds came in. So it became like went up sixty, seventy thousand dollars within a couple hours. Houses sold in Desert Hot Springs that went on the market within twelve hours. Yeah. And they have twenty, thirty bids. There's like no freaking way I can compete against that. Like fuck yeah. that. You know, I'm not I'm I'm out until it, you know, I'm just uh, I'm not gonna tell where the new market is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on yeah, podcast. You gotta go someplace not desirable. Yeah, yeah. you know, but even then because of Coachella, you know, and then yeah. it doesn't matter like Coachella is like a big of the biggest super rock event of you know the century, I guess. You know, like it's like mm-hmm. and then every year and then they have a country one now too. Mm. And then all the all the casinos are all around there now. All these casinos right on the ten there, you know, in Palm Springs and they have shows. It's like mm. a big concerts twenty four seven 360 days a year but wow. that coachella is like that's what people then when that happens that's like two weekends they have six days all together and then after that they have the the stagecoach festival which is part wow. of the same thing and then that's another two weekends so like people flock to that you know and then they you know airbnb there's no residential living there right. really it's so, all yeah. airbnb rented so that's like I would, I would flee. <laughs> yeah, of so like Instead of walking to it, I'm, I'm fleeing. People uh, getting but, out of LA, you know what I mean, because of like of of the COVID and everything, the cost of living. I want, you know, like this is my chance to get the fuck out of here, you know. And so then they get out there, and I think right now, like I see an influx of the prices going down because like living in Joshua Tree is 45 minute drive to the Interstate 10. Okay, mm. so like, yeah, if you into driving to work every day like that, good for you. But the majority of people don't want to do that. They move yeah. there and then they like, fuck, I, I can't. There's nothing here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I want to get out, and then they, they have to drive 45 minutes just to get to town. That's why Desert Hot Springs was building up because it's like Paul Palm Springs right off the tent. Whenever you have a freeway right next to it, you're gonna have a lot of buildup. You know that. So like that's like and then that's like the last all these no man lands you know like are being sold like five acres for a hundred grand you know like mm. like t- three years ago that was right. ten fifteen thousand dollars you know what I mean right. so it's not people moving away I think it's I think more people are moving in I think in yeah. Los Angeles it's just gonna be for the wealthy because they have rent stabilization ordinance here where you know if you want to rent. And um, it goes up to three to six percent a year. That's the that's the rent stabilization ordinance that's made in 1983, and they need to update it. It's almost 40 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you add that 20, 10 years, that 30, three to six percent. That's 30, 30 to 60 percent increase in rent. You know, yeah. and and then yeah. I'm making fifteen dollars an hour working at Jack in a Box or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah, I can't afford that. So that's why you know it's forcing the people out. You know the pour out, and I think that's what's going across America. Like even with Seattle, Portland, Austin, mm-hmm. Miami, you know these uh, desirable places. It's unfortunate Portland, you know, like you were talking about, you know, became very desirable, which is good mm-hmm. in a sense, but it's bad in other because there's no respect of the people that live there. You know, that live yeah. there for a real long you time. Know, 
Um, again, I'm not sure what, what, what how big your listenership is, but let me say publicly, Portland's done. Don't move here. It sucks. They shoot at you. <laughs> well, our listenerships are, you know, like we get about on this one, I'm in about three to 4,000 downloads a month. So it's not go. too bad. Awesome. So that's three or 4,000 people that hopefully won't move here. Yeah, thank you. Don't. It's bad roads. It rains all the time. I remember yeah. one year it rained the whole year, okay? You yeah. don't really want to live that. I mean, Dave Dave Nash from moved from Phoenix to Portland and was there for the winter. Like, I can't handle it. It's too cold. <laughs> Go. Bye. Vamos. Yeah, the, the, wet, the wet cold gets through your – gets under your, into your bones. Yeah, if you have arthritis, not good. But um, – yeah. Anyways, I love the area myself, but, you know, I just, like, I kind of like the tropics. <laughs> if I had yeah, it my I mean, way, I'd live on an island. <laughs> I I would say that Portland still has, I mean, although the pandemic did hurt the food foodie restaurant, you know, bar scene a, a great deal, but it's still, it's very foodie-oriented city. So if that floats your boat and, you know, hopefully you can make some decent money if you're going to move here because... If not, you're going to wind up um, renting a closet <laughs> and working two jobs to pay for that. Um, you know, what's funny is I I finally been in my house 13 years and I have some good equity in it and I could put it on the market and take a bunch of money out of it. And um, but then where do you go? Yeah, and, exactly. Then you're also the being, market. being a fully remote employee. Um, I could actually go anywhere. So I could sell my house and move to a small town and still do the same job. Um, but, you know, I don't want to give up on Portland. I, I like the city. You lived there, shit, man, almost 40 years. All my, all my casual friends are here, exactly. even if they're not deep friends. I mean, I have some deep friendships. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, my girlfriend has some family here. And, um, and you know, I bought this house fully intending to die in it you know i mean not maybe not literally in the house croak but maybe uh or at least you know live my life out here i'm i'm paying making extra payments on it to pay it down because i want to just own it free and clear and then i just gotta pay make enough money to pay taxes and um, yeah, I did an interview with Ken Babs of the Merry Pranksters on my other podcast, mm. Giant Rod Podcast, Giant Rod Podcast, mm. and um, <clears throat> that has a big viewership, listenership. I mean, um, anyways, like he was talking about, like I he moved in 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 the outside of Eugene in spring outside of Springfield in 1967, bought it outright cash for ten thousand dollars. Wow! And then I, he says, I, "When I'm worried about people today, he's 87 years old now." Is people getting in debt with buying houses, and when you could buy, why do they have to buy the latest thing when they can buy something for a hundred bucks? And I went, mm. and it's like, like it's true. Like my dad always like, you got to buy your car outright. Don't ever put payments on it. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But anyways, switch the subjects here. Um, I want to talk about people that have passed away. That in, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. in the, like Stephen Spirit. I want to start with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... Stephen tragically passed a week or two after the Satyricon farewell shows. Oh, that's worth calling out. Uh, I, we were talking earlier about how I booked Satyricon for almost six years in the 90s. Um, when it closed down in 2010, I approached the, the current owner about booking some reunion shows and wound up putting together 11 shows in that month. And uh, Steve actually was um, 
co-hosted or you know, did some speaking at one of the cabarets. Um, the Sunday cabaret was a big thing at Satyricon for many years. Um, be like themed cabaret nights um, with a variety of different sorts of entertainment. And uh, Steve is a poet and a lover and uh, just really smart, cool guy. Uh, played saxophone in Hating Birth. Um, he yeah, was a he, rapper too, man. Uh, yeah, he uh, dropped dead at the, I think he was only 50. It seems so young now because I'm 56. What happened? Uh, it's a congenital defect, I think, or genetic defect in his heart. Uh, apparently, he was walking from one room to another to do laundry, and he just turned off like a light, and I think he was dead before he hit the floor. Um so it's, that's just a nice way to go. Um, yeah, quick, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that kind of, well, I mean, actually, I was going to say that kind of started the the dark period, but really, as in, not every year in the, in the intervening um, 11 years since then. Um, in fact, actually, yeah, it, he died 11 years ago next week, I think. It was like November 6th or so. It's been 7th. that long, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not every every year since then has there been a bunch of deaths, but the last year or two has been really bad. Um, but he, I gotta give, I gotta acknowledge the fact that this started a long time ago. Um, I remember punk rock Billy uh, was a um, cool, funny guy that um, he roadied or managed, roadied like stage managed uh, for Everclear a little bit before they got really big, and. Um, he played in a band and he's just a fun guy and he was found dead um probably something somewhat drug related at least um he was young too and then um dale moore um from willie budman and and my guitar player and rotor um had struggled with heroin for years and had gotten away from it and was living in a halfway house and uh after thanksgiving uh dinner with his family decided oh i, I deserve a little treat so he got some heroin and died on the on the street um and actually the night before that that was uh 98 it's a dark dark thanksgiving uh the night before that uh tanya easter who is a you know long time scene starts chiricon dated um james angel from nero's rome oh, and yeah. string musicians and she's just really really she's gorgeous and also a really really sweet human being one of the people i miss most yeah. um and she died of a heroin overdose the night before dale um, you know, and then Steve Cosmano, pancreatic cancer in the early 2000s. Uh, he was the bass player in Flapjacks and um, Jackals. Uh, and Jerry Ann Sheehan, um, she played in um, Francis Farmer Gals, another really sweet human being. I didn't know she um, died. Oh, okay. not, not quite sure how she died, but um, probably hard living. <laughs> um, Sean, we mentioned Sean Roberts earlier. He died in like 2012, I want to say. Um, and Steve Spirit in 2010. Oh, geez. And then it just starts getting really crazy. Um, in the last couple months, uh, Eric Johnson, the drummer from uh, Gurn Blanston and Bison Bison, uh, just a really fun, funny, hilarious guy, um, apparently bought some pills that he thought were Xanax. Turns out they're laced with fentanyl. Oh, and, no. Yeah, he OD'd on something that he didn't even know he was getting. Um, if you are listening and you are 
a partier and you know a variety of sources where you might get things on the street uh get some fucking fent fentanyl test strips um it just yeah um yeah, don't mess around please people yeah. just test out your stuff before you even take it yeah and you don't have to waste the drugs you just the residue in the bag or you break a little piece off of a pill or something you know, mix it with water and you stick the strip in and it changes color um i actually haven't used them so <laughs> uh here i'm talking out of my ass but i do i do actually have some now that i um a friend gave me a couple just in case i run into a pill and i want to be sure but um uh and then eric died and then like the, the just a few days later lance seaton who was a beloved bartender in town um real gruff but hilarious and very cool uh bartender um at twilight cafe um same same story i'm pretty sure he got some tainted drugs and um well of course chris newman uh last may um that was a struggle with cancer um ironically he had he'd had some heart work done had a stent put in and felt great after that and when he was in for follow-up appointment they noticed something and dug into it and it turns out that his his abdomen was riddled with cancer oh man um, yeah, and they tried. I think they tried to take some out, but it just, yeah, wasn't really wasn't really happening. And I think he died pretty miserable. It's very sad. Um, just an amazingly talented and sweet yeah, person. He was a neighbor. Yeah, guy, yeah. Uh, Chris really Newman was the guitarist and singer of uh, Napalm Beach, most famously. Um, did really well in Portland and somewhat in Seattle, especially in the eighties. They were they were pretty big in Seattle, but really they they really shined in Europe, um, kind of like Dead Moon. Um, Dead Moon was very huge in Europe. Uh, another another person we've lost, uh, a couple people, uh, Andrew in, I think, 2016, and Fred in 2017 uh, from Dead Moon. Um, Slayer hippie, Steve, Steve Hanford. He died? Uh, wow. Yeah. When did yeah, uh, a year ago. Yeah, it was a year ago, May, so it's about a year and a half now. Oh, man. Um, I think, yeah, he had, a, he had a rough right. life yeah. early in the pandemic. Yeah, well, he had gotten out of prison and seemed to be doing really well. I was very in love with Katie Diggins, and they were very happy together. And he just was walking up the stairs and collapsed and had a heart attack. And um, yeah, the paramedics were called, but it was too late. Um, and he was only like fifty, I think. So. Um, yeah, and you know, speaking of members of Poison Idea, Tom Pig passed in, oh, I think the late 2000s. Uh, I think, yeah, I think he passed when I was living. I moved to Olympia to finish my uh, college degree in 2002, finished it up by 2004, and stayed there for another year working for a company, but then wanted to get out of there and wound up going to work for a company in Hawaii for a year, but then came back to Portland because. That, that had always been the plan even when i left was I, I would always come back to portland um who else has died um well um lucy razabek um wife of ex-wife of Roz razabek Roz was the lead singer of theater of sheep in the 80s and she died under kind of mysterious circumstances a few months back and just a few days ago Roz posted on facebook that they got the toxicology report and it was like a laundry list including fentanyl uh and something called 
oh God, I can't remember the exact phrase, Chinese uh, experimental chemical or something. Um, so apparently, apparently the Chinese are, are cranking out fake pills with fentanyl in them and shipping them over here. Another something else that's killing people. Wow. Yeah. It's just, again, don't take the fentanyl. <laughs> take it tested, right. people. I mean, we're yeah, not, I mean, we're not advocating people. anything. They'll say it's Xanax, and people are like, oh, well, it's just a little Xanax. Just take the edge off. I won't be you know, nervous, right? Um, I have a prescription for Ativan because I get anxiety attacks, panic attacks. And um, yeah, I'm glad that I have a prescription. Um, you know, I, I got to say the the attitudes toward towards substances in this country are still, we've come a long way. I'm really proud to work for Weed Maps is working very hard to make drug laws much more reasonable and, you know, for basically to, to end prohibition because it's just, it's a they, they work with normal, failure. Does, What's that? Do they work with normal weed maps? Um, I'm not sure if they work directly with normal. Uh, they have their own, um, uh, and all of, all the things I'm saying, I should say all these, all the things I'm saying in this interview, uh, reflect my own opinions and not, not those of my employer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, they have a, a policy wing, uh, department at the company. Um, there's a lot of lawyers that are working to push, um, uh, referendums and proposals and, and they, they work with the last prisoner project a great deal to get people out of prison, uh, who have been, you know, ridiculous ridiculously long sentences in prison for a fucking pot like really <laughs> for a can joint we, some of it's just for get a over joint. this life sentence. right now i mean you're not you're not going to fix anybody even if it's like i think meth is pretty bad and it, people get crazy and i didn't i've tried it in the past and i didn't like it and i you know but just trying to you know like use a bully stick to to make people not want to do it's, it's not going to work you know you need to work with people and help them get past the thing that's driving them to do that but yeah incarceration doesn't work it's yeah. the drug war is dead i mean since nixon and it was nixon mm -hmm. trying to get back basically timothy leary was running against nixon that's why he did this yeah you know the bottom line i did a whole oh, podcast on that a lot by of way. racism too Yes. A lot of racism. I mean, the drug laws have been very clearly, um, egregiously um, applied disproportionately to people of color. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And they deserve a reparation, reparation from yeah. that, just from the drug war. But I'm not talking about they should be able to have businesses like first in line for yeah. the cannabis businesses in this and then. And they should not be tax exempt for a certain period, at least, so they can yeah. make money. You know what I yeah. mean? So I don't know if you've seen uh, the documentary Thir 13th. No, I haven't. Thirteen or 13th. It's about the 13th Amendment. Um, and yeah, just long history of uh, racist drug uh, laws and uh, how marijuana is a part of Negro culture, black, black culture going back a long time. And um, uh, yeah, how the drug war since the beginning of cannabis, like when when they were you know with the New York jazz musicians, black jazz mm -hmm. musicians influencing white women to smoke yeah. marijuana and then reefer mm -hmm. madness, <clears throat> and then that was the '30s, and then you know like you, you know the story like yeah. Dupont, yeah. you know trying to put nylon out and trying to crush hemp completely out, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, and that. Um, 
uh, and I'm not going to remember his name, the, the head of the drug commission, the drug, the drug czar, the first one. Ass. His name, um, yeah, he's a total Ass. asshole and like really ruined a lot of lives. Um, yeah, I can't re- recommend uh, the movie The 13th enough. It's, it's just really well put together documentary, very nicely made and just devastating. Like you, your jaw just drops farther and farther and farther. You know, I, I knew some of that stuff, but when you string it all together, um, yeah, we should, we should be fucking ashamed of ourselves. And we, we learn from that moving forward, you know, like yeah. it's unification versus division. Duality goes nowhere. And unification of a, of a human's, human species. This is what I talk about on Giant Rod Podcast, a lot of this stuff. Mm. And talk about grief and death. Mm. And um, basically, like, I, people seeing that everything's divided, you know, like, like the Trumpsters are only 3.8% of the voting population, of the, vote, of the population as a whole, not the voting population. And then if you look at the rest of the country, are not like this, but if you let people like this take a foothold in our country, and have the media portraying it as the majority, like we were talking about how the, how you know how the media portrays things and exaggerates mm-hmm. the yep. exaggeration and fear mongering for ratings. Oh, that that guy sells papers like crazy. You know, uh, so sells papers in a. At um, that note, because it's it's selling the television and everything. Like he, he's yeah, he was such a boon to the news business. They loved him, um, but uh, yeah. Things, yeah, um, things are moving forward. You know, I see things being better than worse. You know, like we're, you know, we're humanity's going know. through this growth of you know, like divisiveness, duality, and I see things. People are being more unified. People will see the bullshit that the media is shoving down. People look at what's going on with Facebook. You know, like it's quickly changing the name to Meta. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. and after the data breach, you know, the net that kind of like got swept under the rug. You know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, 1.5 billion people got their, you know, information compromised on Facebook. And mm-hmm. no one's really talking about that, you know. And so, like, it, changing that, you know, I, I, there's there's something else going to happen, you know. You could feel it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, on that note, on that note, it, mm-hmm. Ben Benat, thank you and yeah. for coming on. And if you have like websites or anything you want to tell our audience, like, we're, uh, um, you know. well, my personal website is ben.monat.com, uh, M-U-N-A-T.com. I, I have some technical blog stuff up there, but I also, I did, I built a website in the two thousands when I first got into computers, mm-hmm. got back into computers, um, first learned HTML and I had this shitty website up for years. And I finally, um, when I shifted, jobs a couple years ago I, I redid it um so i have all this old content uh so i have some of my old writing from um writing for Willamette week and um the seattle weekly and uh pdxs of course was music editors there's some of my music writing up there uh there's some of my weird goofy electronic experiments uh, there's, oh. some, there's a page about Thrillhammer. um so yeah if people are interested um all right. Probably it. Awesome. But yeah, man. thanks. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Nice Thank you for coming on, Dan, really, and, and talking about everything, you know, with Portland and your involvement with the scene mm-hmm. of the 90s. And, you know, and thank you, Thrillhammer. Thank you for the great mm-hmm. music that you put out, too. Right. really appreciate it. 
So anyways, uh, thank you for everybody. Um, hopefully you'll be back real again real soon again. Yes, we will. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye.
Sunday, 11.05 a.m. Sunday, 8.33 p.m.
video, we stock adult CD, ROM, and LaserDisc. We have the lowest price on adult videos. Example, store A, $64.95, store B, $49.95, plus $9,029.95. New releases, store A, $54.95, store B, they didn't have any. Plus $9,029.95, two locations, low prices, and a great trade plus. If you don't believe me, ask Bill. Biff Malibu here telling you to buy your videos from Plaza 9000 in Portland.